just set up to record. Have you ever felt like you're on the outskirts of a group? You're kind of part of a group, but you're not really part of it. Now, for some reason, you're not really welcomed into the core. Now, perhaps you're too posh, or you're not posh enough. Now, perhaps you don't wear the right sorts of clothes, or you didn't have the right sorts of education. You follow the wrong sport, you support the wrong team. You like the wrong kind of foods, you enjoy the wrong kind of coffee. Maybe, though, you've never been on the edge of a group. Perhaps you've always felt like you're part of the core. You're in the centre. But how have those around you felt? Now, have they been left out? Have they felt like they're on the edge? The core is just made up of people who are like you. So have you ever felt on the edge of a group? Have you ever left people on the edge of a group? That's not the way the kingdom of God works. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the heart of God. And whatever our experiences in the wider world with groups, it's not the way of God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. Now, that may come as a comfort or a rebuke to us. It comes as a comfort if we are those who have felt like we're on the edge of a group. It's a rebuke if we are those who have left people on the edge of a group. But whether it comes as a comfort or as a rebuke, Most likely, I think, for us, probably a mixture of the two. Now, we are going to look at what the heart of God is revealed in this passage uh, and what that means about being part of God's kingdom. Now, so wherever we're at this evening, now for all of us, we want the light of God's glory to shine on us, that we may see the heart of God, that we may reflect him in this world. So... As you know, we're continuing our series in Acts. Acts, the kind of summary, certainly one that I've been given uh, every few weeks that we do this. Acts is this two-volume work, Luke, Acts. And it's about how Jesus is indeed the fulfilment of all that God has purposed, all that God has promised. Acts, it continues this theme, is now looking at the work, the continued work of the risen, of the ascended Jesus, who works in and through his church by the Holy Spirit. If you remember, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, Acts chapter 2, verse 39, this is what Peter says. He declares that the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And this gift of God, the gift of God is a river rather than a well. See, a well goes deep. There's a depth to a well, but a well's static. And if you're going to be refreshed by a well, you need to be kind of part of that group. You need to be there. You need to be part of that that locale. But a river is something that goes deep and it goes wide and it goes out. And in Acts, we're seeing this river of God's love that is flowing out from his throne of grace. It's a river that goes wide. It's a river that goes deep. It goes wide. We've seen this pattern. We've been reminded of it. Andrew reminded us last week again. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. This river is going out, it's going wide, but it also goes deep. It doesn't diminish as it goes out. It doesn't get shallow on the edges as it goes out. It gets deep, it remains deep. And those who are far off, as we read here in 2.39, the promise is for them. It's not a lesser promise. 
The promise is for those who are far off. It's not a lesser gospel that is given to those who are far off. But to everyone, every spiritual blessing is given in Jesus Christ. So this evening as we go through uh, Acts 10, we're going to consider those two things. We're going to consider the breadth and also the depth of this love of God that goes out. So, the breadth of God's love. And just before we got to Acts uh, 10, so Acts chapter 8, we read about the Ethiopian eunuch. We started to see there something of the gospel going out to all nations. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's a Gentile. Uh, He's not one of God's covenant people. And he was coming back from Jerusalem. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his journey back, he encounters the life-giving river of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And then, as we come to chapter 10 here with Cornelius, it's like we take a step further out. So Cornelius, he's also a Gentile. He seems to be a step further removed in some ways than the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, And as we go through Acts, we're going to see this river flow even further out when it comes to other Gentiles who are pagans. They don't worship the God of Israel. But now, going from the Ethiopian eunuch to Cornelius, it's like we've taken this other step further out. So the Ethiopian eunuch, he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. Jerusalem, the religious center, the place where God's temple was. Now Cornelius, he's based in Caesarea. That's the administrative center of Rome in that region. So you've got Jerusalem, the religious center of the God of Israel, with the temple of God. And then you've got Caesarea, which is the, the, uh, the Roman administrative center uh, in that region. And the temple that's there is a temple to Caesar. So in some ways, like we've gone this step further out. And yet Cornelius, he's a worshipper of God. And we're told, have a look at verse 2. He, Cornelius, and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And the language that's used here suggests that Cornelius is one of these people, this group that's known as God-fearers. So God-fearers, they were Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel, the one true God. They'd often go along to the synagogue. They, they weren't full converts to Judaism, so he wouldn't have been circumcised. But he'd have gone along to the synagogue. He was in some ways part of the group, but he was on the outskirts of the group. He wasn't a full member of God's people in the Jewish sort of understanding. Someone who's on the edge of a group. So to this guy who's on the edge of a group, suddenly an angel appears. And this is what he says to him, verse 4. Or rather Cornelius at first. As he stares at him in fear and he says, what is it, Lord? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And so there's this guy who's on the edge of the group. And the angel's message to him basically is, God notices you. Which is great, isn't it? You know what it's like to be on the edge of a group and it feels like no one notices you. And here's this guy who's on the edge of a group. And the opening message is, Cornelius, God notices you. Your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Interestingly, this term here, memorial offering, is what's used in Leviticus to speak of uh, offerings that would have been given at the tabernacle or at the temple 
come on to that uh, in a moment. So God notices you and then Cornelius is instructed, go and send for this guy, Peter. Peter, remember, Peter was the one who delivered those words, Acts 2.39. The promise is for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so we've got Cornelius here, he's on the edge. He's one of those people who is far off and the Lord has taken this initiative. This is someone that the Lord is calling and he's going to do so. He's going to bring him in by the proclamation of the gospel. That's why he's been told to send for Peter. Because for all Cornelius' devotion and for all his acts of piety, he still needs Jesus. That's important for us to remember as we were thinking this morning. We need Jesus is not because of our acts of piety and devotion. We need Jesus. It is only through him. The angel doesn't say to Cornelius, look, because of your devotion, because of your piety, you've earned yourself. Congratulations. You're now part of God's kingdom. You have earned yourself a place in the kingdom of God. You've now become a citizen. That's not the message that the angel delivers. What the angel says is God notices you. And actually, God doesn't see you any different than he sees the worshippers in Jerusalem. I think that's something of what's coming here. Your, your prayers, your gifts, they've come up as a memorial. Same language that's used of the offerings, as we said in Leviticus. So as God sees you, he doesn't see you any different to those worshippers who are in Jerusalem. But now go. Go and send for Peter. Peter, who has been proclaiming in Jerusalem... The good news of Jesus the Messiah. He's been saying to those in the temple, look, you need to turn to Christ. And the same message is the message that Cornelius needs to hear. Turning to Christ, the salvation that is in, that is in Christ Jesus, is the message that is delivered to those who are worshipping in the temple. It's a message that is to be delivered to those who are worshipping outside the temple. This is what Cornelius is to hear. Even the most religious person needs to hear the message of the gospel. As we heard this morning, yeah, we need to remind ourselves of that truth. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So the angel says, Cornelius, send for Peter. And then in verse 9, we move our focus. We move to Joppa, where Peter is staying. About noon the following day, as they were on the journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Now in the book of Leviticus, uh, God calls his people to be holy. He says, be holy because I am holy. You are to be holy, you are to be set apart from the nations. And one of the ways that that set apart was manifest was through this giving of various uh, foods regulations. So Leviticus 11, click for me, Orla. 
Uh, Leviticus 11 goes through uh, different clean and unclean foods. Uh, and then it says this in verse 43 and following. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourself unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So the people of Israel had this calling on them to be holy. One of the ways that that was seen, one of the ways they were set apart was by the foods that they ate. Remember, Peter's Jewish. So avoiding the foods in Leviticus 11 is something uh, that he's grown up with. This has been part of his life. And he's up, he's praying about midday. Tummy starts rumbling. Get that hunger feeling, you know what it's like. And then he has this vision where basically God lays out this buffet. It's an all-you-can-eat meat feast. And God says to him, eat. You're hungry, just, just take something and eat. And we can assume from Peter's response that the animals that are laid out in front of him there are all the unclean animals from Leviticus 11. And Peter responds, surely, Lord, no, you can't mean this like this must be a test. No, Lord, I won't. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to start now. It doesn't matter how hungry I am. And then his voice calls out a second time that says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And Peter kind of gets caught in this, it feels a bit like a time loop. So this thing repeats, it happens three times. So three times he hears this message, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So God called his people to be set apart, to be holy. And for centuries, food laws were one of the things that had set God's people apart. But in this vision, now Peter is being told, you know, these foods are clean. We read of that in Mark's gospel, don't we? Jesus says it's not what enters your mouth, it's what comes out of the heart that makes a person unclean. And then there's a comment after, thus, in saying this, Jesus made all foods clean. But it took a while for the disciples to catch on to this. These foods are clean, but it goes deeper than that. So have a look at verse 15. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Or more literally, what it says is what God has cleansed, you shouldn't call impure. So that thing that God has cleansed, whatever that thing is, if God has cleansed it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be called impure, regardless of whatever past status it had, regardless of however you would have viewed it in the past. Whatever God has cleansed, do not call impure. And so then, verse 17, Peter's wondering about the meaning of this vision. And it says, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Uh, they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter's wondering what on earth was his vision about. Uh, the term wandering, wandering, sound like I'm saying wandering, wandering here uh, is the same term that is used when the women find the empty tomb. 
And it, it speaks of this perplexity. It's not this, hmm, I've got two options here. I'm just kind of weighing them up in my mind. Something at a loss of what to make uh, of what's happening here. So I, you can kind of understand a bit, a bit why Peter's puzzled. Now, what does this actually mean? And we just think back to when COVID restrictions were lifted. I, I was that a month ago or, or whatever. For two years, we've been told, like, don't do this. And these are the things you need to do. And then we're suddenly told, right, COVID restrictions are lifted. Now, the message was clear enough. We knew what that meant. But I'm, I remember just speaking with some of you. There's this kind of puzzle of, practically, what does that mean now? Like, can I, can I do this? Should I be doing this? Should I be wearing a mask in this situation? So the message was clear enough, but exactly how it applies to everyday life. There was some sense of perplexity. And it seems similar here with Peter. And for centuries, because people have been set apart, one of the ways they've been set apart was through the foods that they ate. And here it seems to be no longer the case. And Peter's question, well, what are the implications of this? What does this mean? And as Peter is puzzling over this, as he's trying to put all the pieces together, suddenly uh, these men from Cornelius appear and the Spirit tells him, go with them. Don't don't hesitate because I've sent them. Because maybe Peter would have hesitated, as we'll see shortly. These Gentiles who have come, they're going to invite him into Cornelius' home. So when Peter goes to Caesarea, we're going to jump ahead to verse 28. He says, verse 28, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So for a Jew to go into a Gentile home, it was similar as it would have been for us. Now, if, if you're healthy and you went into a COVID-infected house during lockdown. Something kind of of that sense. But God has just revealed to Peter, you don't call impure what God has cleansed. And then having heard from Cornelius uh, his account, Peter then goes on to say, uh, verse 34... I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And so as all these pieces come together, Peter realizes, you know, this is the work of God. God has been bringing all this about so that this Gentile and these Gentiles who are gathered in this house can hear the message of the gospel. Now, those who are on the outskirts, those who are kind of outsiders, that they may hear this message. God does not show favoritism. Peter sees just how clearly uh, this is, that the good news of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, that it's not just to be restricted to one group, that it is for all people. This is the breadth of God's love. It's reaching out and it's reaching far. So that promise, Acts Acts 2.39, promise is for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call that there is no limit it's for all whom god will call and so a question for us have we grasped that have we grasped that truth and theologically i think we'd say yes we wouldn't question it the gospel is for all but practically now do we live out of that truth Do we think 
Or rather, do we demonstrate at times by our actions and by our attitudes that actually first people need to become like us? Now, how, how might that work out? Ways that we might do it consciously or unconsciously, that we only make the gospel accessible to people who are like us. So, uh, there are some churches, they don't have a morning service because of Sunday sports. They just have an afternoon service. How do you feel about that? Kind of what's your immediate reaction as you think about that? If we said at Kingfisher, we're going to scrap our morning service. We're not doing that, by the way. But if we said we're going to scrap our morning service and we're just going to have an afternoon service, what would our reaction be? Would we think, well, you know, people just need to not be doing sport on a Sunday because we don't. And if that's our reaction, what might that reveal? Is that us starting to think, actually, people need to be like us first? Or do we speak of the gospel in a way that can only be understood by people like us? And when there are misunderstandings, do we just assume, well, the problem's with that person, rather than asking, well, maybe the problem is something with the way that we communicate so to take another example, when, when people said, uh, not anyone that I know specifically in this area, but this is an argument sometimes that people have put forward. Now, Jesus' death on the cross, it sounds like divine child abuse. What's our response? Are we just going to quickly write them off as heretics? Or do we consider, well, maybe they've misunderstood penal substitutionary atonement because of the way that we communicate it? Because to be sure, the Bible does teach Jesus as our sin bearer, that he experiences the wrath of God against sin. That the cross, in the cross we see the love of God, we also see the justice of God. And yet sometimes though, in evangelical circles, the cross is presented in such a way that it's as though God has an anger problem that needs to be pacified rather than we have a sin problem that provokes the just wrath of God. How is it communicated? Do we speak about the gospel in a way that can only be understood by people like us? And we don't want to be like the arrogant British tourist who just assumes everyone else should speak English. And if you don't get it, I'm just going to say the same thing again, but slower and louder because the problem is with you. Now, In our communication, do we unconsciously say, you need to be like us first before you can hear before you can understand the gospel. And of course, none of this has been said with a pointed finger, which is what makes it easy to say it. But these are the kind of questions that I think it's good for us to, to grapple with, to wrestle with, to ask ourselves. Because here in Acts, we see the gospel, it goes out, and it's not a be like us first. Rather, it's Jesus saying, I'm sending you out to them. Because God doesn't show favoritism. The gospel is not just for people of a certain ethnic or economic or educational background. The love of God, it goes out to bring all types of people into his kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, there are no second class citizens. There aren't people who just kept on the outskirts. And that's because the life giving love of God, it not only goes out wide, it also goes deep. 
Right, Seth, can you move us on to the next one? Uh, in the last few minutes, we're going to spend some time thinking about the depth of God's love. So Peter then goes on to proclaim this good news about Jesus. And it seems from the language, if you have a look at verse 37, he seems to assume that there's some awareness from Cornelius and those who gathered there uh, about Jesus, that you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. So there seems to be some awareness of some of the events. Peter's going to explain the significance of this. Uh, Verse 39, let's pick it up. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead and on the third day caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And so those who are on the outskirts, now these Gentiles, kind of on the edge of the group, receive the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says in verse 47, surely no one can stand in their way of being baptised. They've received the Holy Spirit Just as we have. So just as we have, there's not something different that is given to this non-Jewish crowd. The river of God, it goes out wide, but it remains just as deep. There's not something different. A Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, just as we have, again, Acts 2.39. The promise, the promise of what? The Holy Spirit is for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God We'll call. So Peter says no one can f- forbid them baptism. We need to recognise them as fully-fledged citizens of God's kingdom because that is what they are. As we considered a bit earlier, one of the ways that God's people, Israel, in the past were distinguished from the other nations were the food laws. That was one of the ways that they were set apart to be holy. But that's no longer the case here. The way that the people of God are set apart, the way that the people of God are distinguished, that they're marked out is by the Spirit of God. It's not food, it's the Spirit of God that sets the people of God apart. And what we see here in many ways is a fulfilment of the longing of the prayer of Moses uh, back in Exodus 33. Cue you, Seth. Or Orla, whoever's got the clicker. They said, we won't get distracted. (laughs) Exodus uh, 33, uh, verse 15. So Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other peoples on the face of the earth? That is why they had the tabernacle, the temple, God's presence with his people. But this reaches its ultimate fulfillment now in the pouring out of the Spirit. And you remember it in Luke, Acts. So one of those themes is that through Jesus, that the, the promise, the purposes of God reach their fulfillment. That this is it. This is the fulfillment of God's promises, of his purposes. That the people of God are distinguished. They're set apart. They're marked by the presence of the Spirit. 
And so Cornelius and his household, now they receive the same spirit. Peter's saying they've been set apart just like us. They've been marked as the people of God, just like us. They have the Holy Spirit, just as we have. They're not second-class citizens. And there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Jew and Gentile brought in to experience every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. This is the love of God going deep. As it goes out, it remains just as deep. The love of God goes deep. But how deep does it go? Well, let's just get a glimpse, I think, at something more of the depth of God's love. Have a look at verse 44 again. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. This could be a dangerous confession. Um, Because my kids are here. I struggle to keep gifts a secret. If I bought a present, I want to give it kind of straight away. I think they know something of that, don't they? Signing up for some sort of, what is it, Seth? Uh, What's a He-Man thing? Yeah, what's it called? Funding. What's it, what's it called? Backing. Yeah, backing, yeah. So back to game. A bit of a nice surprise for Seth. He knows already. I've told him already. Couldn't keep it a secret. So I struggle to keep things a secret. Getting a present and keeping it hidden till a birthday. It doesn't come naturally to me. I do it, but it's not easy. It's like I can hear this little voice. It's there, it's there, it's there. It's there in the garage. I could give it to him. I kind of let it where I might hide some things but I'm not going to tell you anymore so I struggle I struggle to keep (laughs) gifts a secret I told you it was a dangerous confession didn't I if I have the gift I want to give it as soon as I can why wait till the birthday now remember when we were in Acts uh, 11 a few weeks back now if you though being evil know how to give your children good gifts how much more will your heavenly father give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask him and if I have a desire to give How much more does our Heavenly Father? But in verse 44 here, Peter is partway through his sermon. He's not finished. And God's like, that's it, we're here, we're ready, right, I'm giving the gift of the Spirit. He's spoken about forgiveness, right, we're there. This is a bit like a father who's waking up their child as soon as the clock strikes midnight on Christmas morning. It's like, right, it's time for presents. And you might expect, you know, well, I'm going to normally wake up first and then we'll have breakfast and go to church and we have our Christmas dinner. And then it's a time where we sort of have our, our family present time. And as soon as that minute hand hits 12, you're woken up and out of your bleary eyes, you see this big, broad grin of a father standing over to you with his present. Be like, now, now, come on, open it, open it. I've got it. It's ready. It's for you. I want you to have it now. I'm so excited to give this to you. That's kind of the sense of what we've got going on here. God is so eager to give his heart. Peter has barely got the words out that all the prophets testify about him, Jesus. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And as soon as that message is out, God's like, right, it's ready. Receive the gift of the Spirit. And Jeremiah 31 tells us the forgiveness of sins is for the purpose of knowing God. 
God is eager to give good gifts. He only gives what is good. He only gives what is best. He gives of his very self, his presence, his Holy Spirit. So as soon as this message about forgiveness is proclaimed, forgiveness through Christ, God in his zealous love pours out his spirit. He doesn't wait for Peter to finish. The sermon is interrupted. We see something of God's heart here and how deep the heart of God goes. Throughout this, there's been no reluctance on God's part from start to finish at chapter 10. This is God who is initiating it, God who is moving it, God who is taking things forward. It's everyone else who's having to play this catch-up to try and figure out what is going on. This is God's plan, this is God's purpose. And everyone else is playing the catch-up to his good and his glorious purpose of bringing people into his kingdom, even those who are far off as fully-fledged citizens. And so, as we considered at the beginning, now have you ever felt on the outskirts of a group? Have you ever left others on the outskirts of a group? That isn't the way of God's kingdom. It's not the heart of God. That in Christ we are brought into full membership of his family, of his kingdom. And so this evening know this, that in Christ anyone can be brought into God's kingdom and those who are brought in are not second class citizens. We're brought into full membership. So this evening, and as we go from here, let's see ourselves and let's see others in the light of this gospel truth. Let's pray. Father, your love for us is something that is beyond our comprehension. And sometimes we... Lord, sometimes we are slow to grasp something of that because it seems so familiar to us. Well, because of our sin, because we, uh, we're caught up with, with so many other things in this life. And yet we, we pray, just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, or for that church that was a testimony of your grace as you brought Jew and Gentile together. Lord, a one people created in Christ. Lord, that we would know, Lord, your love. Lord, its height, its depth, its breadth. Lord, that we would know that love. A love that is beyond knowing. Lord, that we would know it as we experience it. Lord, that we would plunge into that river. And though we may never reach the bottom. Lord, that we would be completely enveloped. Lord, and that our view of ourselves and our view of others uh, would be shaped, Lord, by your view, by your perspective, and by your heart. Amen. We're, um, we'll take a moment to, to reflect on, on something of what we've looked at and to... I need to pray in the quietness of our hearts. And whilst we're doing that, we're going to play a song um, that might help with that. <laughs>